Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. minute where we just want to catch the pigs in Mad Max 2 the Road Warrior one minute at a time. I'm Rick and I'm Julia and today we're talking about minute 58 which begins with the Lord Humongous torturing his hostages and it ends with the compound dwellers fixing up their vehicles in preparation for leaving. We start off this minute with more of the I would call them raider shenanigans that we saw at the end of minute 57. It's the night of torture montage, I think it could be referred to as. Would you agree? Yeah, that sounds about right. (laughs) It's not exactly the motivational Rocky montage that we're probably used to. It's just got a different feel about it because it's supposed to be incredibly scary to the people that are in the compound. Yeah, I think it's motivational in a different way Mm -hmm. or intended to be. Right. One thing's for sure, we get a little bit more of the flaming nunchucks that we saw yesterday. There's one guy in the horde that just really loves twirling around his flaming sticks. Yeah, that seems kind of awkward to me. Like, the setting. Yeah. Like, it's not like people are watching him. He's just standing there doing it while other people are actually working around him. You get the sense that before the collapse, this was probably the dude who was at the rave with the glow sticks, flailing them around, (laughs) high on something. And now that we're in the post-apocalypse, he finds himself as a raider. And now, because it's, I guess, party time, he gets to light up his sticks and start flailing them around again. I guess so. Living that rave life that he loved so much. His actions at least aren't hurting anybody. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the people working around him, they're working at torturing the the scouts yeah that have been captured so he's just standing there uh, kind of innocently not hurting anyone yeah i think the flame stick twirler and the dudes on the motorcycles that are just kicking up dust making their little donut rings in the dirt those are probably the most harmless raiders in this instance i appreciate that you brought up the motorcycle guy who's doing a donut Because did you notice he did his donut and then he streaked off in one direction? He did? He did. Not as dramatically as we see in in Mad Max 79. Certainly he didn't make the mark because he didn't skid off, but he drove off in one direction, which is a natural thing to do. So he made a rather clear open circle with a line down the middle, though? Yes, I think so. That's the symbol, though. I mean, it's not as deliberate. No. I'm not even sure that George Miller did that deliberately. Yeah. If you're on a motorcycle and you're making donuts, tracks in the dirt with your back tire kind of thing, at some point you have to stop and drive off in one direction. I think we might have found a reference to the first movie, though. Yeah. Inadvertently and in the background, I think we might have dug up a reference. I think so. That makes me happy. Yeah. I like references back to the first movie. <laughs> One thing that stands out as odd during this little uh, terror montage is the rain that seems to be there, but also not there at the same time. Some of these shots that we fade in and out of, there appear to be just sheets of water coming in from off screen mm-hmm. as if it was raining. And And nowhere else in this montage do we see people in rain getting wet, that type of thing. And it seems like an odd thing to throw in there. 
It does. And I'm not sure that it adds to the atmosphere either. So it kind of seems maybe like it's a waste of time and money for George Miller to have put that in. I'm just not sure what we are supposed to get from the presence of the rain. I'm sure there must have been a story there, some sort of explanation for why it showed up on screen. Everybody is out in the open air. Between the marauders and their nightmare scene and the compound dwellers, most people are out in the open air. Especially in the compound, we should be able to see that it has rained. Right. We the should see... The ground should be wet. People should be wet. Exactly. And nothing. It's just weird. Yeah, it kind of strikes me as a fluke. Kind of strikes me as a half-hearted attempt. Like they thought it would be cool if it rained, but then halfway through they're like, "Mm, this isn't working. Let's stop doing it. Like I said, I'm sure there's a story behind it. I'm sure there is. We haven't listened to the commentary on the Blu-ray in a while. Oh, we haven't. So I'm sure if... If they see it, they might bring it up. I don't know. We'll have to see if we can do that before tomorrow. Anyway, we fade from Flaming Nunchuck's motorcycles, Weird Rain, over to the Lord Humongous, and he is standing up on the ridge, and he is boldly gesturing and saying something. We can't hear him because of the music, but he seems to be saying something. Yeah, I don't think we're meant to know what he says. Mm -hmm. Could look it up in the screenplay. Yeah, what does the screenplay say about Let's this scene? See. I haven't looked at the screenplay in a while. I gotta find our find our place. Okay, it's so a black on black on the road, so that's too soon. I don't see this marauder scene in the screenplay at all. It goes straight from the curmudgeon talking to the gyro captain about the copter taking two people to Max's walk through the compound, to a scene where Max is working on his car, rearming the booby traps and and whatnot, to the curmudgeon and Papagallo coming to talk to Max. Hmm. Yeah, the scene is not in there at all. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Huh. So Lord Humongous is standing up on the ridge. He's boldly gesturing and waving his arms around. And according to the folks over at the Mad Max Wikia, in this scene, he is reciting a poem by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe entitled Der Erkonig. And I definitely pronounced that wrong because it's supposed to be, I think, German. Von Goethe was born in Frankfurt, so definitely not in English. But it is a poem that is all about a father and son who are riding on a horse through the night and they're trying to get home. And the child is able to see the villainous elf king. And, well, I mean, I might as well just go through and read it. <laughs> so, like I said, the entire thing is in German, but there is a literal translation and then there's a more poetic translation. I'll go by the literal one, but oh. in the... Do you want me to go with the more poetic one? Yeah. So, the more poetic translation is by Edgar Alfred Bowring, or Bowring, depending on how you want to pronounce it, but the poem goes as follows. Who rides there so late through the night dark and drear? The father is with his infant so dear. He holdeth the boy tightly clasped in his arm. He holdeth him safely. He keepeth him warm. My son, wherefore seekest thou thy face thus to hide? Look, father, the Earl King is close by our side. Dost see not the Earl King with crown and with train? My son, tis the mist rising over the plain. O come thou, dear infant, O come thou with me, for many a game I will play there with thee. On my strand lovely flowers their blossoms unfold, my mother shall grace thee with garments of gold. 
My father, my father, and dost thou not hear the words of that Earl King now breathes in mine ear? Be calm, dearest child, tis thy fantasy deceives, tis the sad wind that sights through the withering leaves. Wilt go then, dear infant, wilt go with me there? My daughter shall tend thee with sisterly care. My daughters by night their glad festival keep. They'll dance thee and rock thee and sing thee to sleep. My father, my father, and dost thou not see how the Earl King his daughters has brought here for me? My darling, my darling, I see it all right. Tis the aged gray willows deceiving thy sight. I love thee, I'm charmed by thy beauty, dear boy, and if thou art unwilling, then force I'll employ. My father, my father, he seizes me fast, for sorely the Earl King has hurt me at last. The father now gallops, with terror half wild, he grasps in his arms the poor shuddering child. He reaches his courtyard with toil and with dread, the child in his arms finds he motionless, dead. Oh! Yep. Wow! That is creepy. Mm Mm-hmm. And... And yeah, wow, that is quite the ending. Mm. So Bowring interprets it as Arrow King. The literal translation refers to it as an elf king. Whatever translation you go by, it's a sort of villainous forest spirit that steals away the life of this child that is riding through with their father in the dead of night. And so I see the Lord Humongous reciting this poem with him as the role of the elf king. The idea that he wants the oil, he wants the compound, he wants the dwellers, in a sense, the same way the elf king wants the boy, and that if they are not going to come willingly, that he will take them by force, that type of thing. From the elf king's perspective, he tries to coerce them nicely, he tries to entice them, but they refuse, and so ultimately, he takes their life. And so, it makes sense that someone like... The Lord Humongous would recite that if we're going on the nationality of the actor. The fact that Nielsen came from that area of the world, and he would probably be very familiar with uh, the Von Guth poem. I do wonder if there was ever any takes during filming where you could actually hear Humongous reciting the poem. I'm sure there is a cut of the soundtrack that takes the score out of it so that you can hear the Lord Humongous speaking. The poem was actually set to music by a couple of different composers. I think the one that's best known is Franz Schubert's version. And then there's also a version by folk singer Steve Gillette, as well as one written by Carl Lowe. So you can go on YouTube and find a bunch of instances where people are singing the poem in the native German. Nice. Yeah. So it's apparent to me that he's probably standing up there speaking in the German tongue, probably sticking mostly to the Elf King verses, because that seems specifically applicable to this moment. Yes. Although, I mean, the people probably wouldn't be able to understand him. Right. I don't think anyone really is fluent in German in the compound. And... I mean, they certainly can't hear him in the compound. Exactly. No, no, I shouldn't say that because he was talking before without a microphone, yet inexplicably coming out of speakers and they could hear him in the compound. So theoretically, they could still hear him. Yeah. It's hard to tell because they broke the rules of physics before, so it's hard to tell if they're breaking the rules of physics now. Yeah, plus there's the whole, you've got all the shouting and the screaming from the scouts that are being tortured and the noises of the engines and the... Yeah. Not to mention all of the work that's going on inside the compound creating noise there. I kind of assumed that he was 
now speaking to his own troops, rallying them to continue their torturing and Mm -hmm. making a show of being violent. I could see that. We get a few more instances of raiders doing raider stuff before we cut back to the compound we get a fade from the lord humongous over to another scout being lifted off tied to i called them torture frames because they look like giant x's and then the limbs are kind of lashed i'd say to each end Mm -hmm. you could also interpret them as crosses i think you uh when we were going over notes that's how you referred to them yeah simply because it is a literally it's a cross exactly pieces of wood crossed over each other and that it forms an x instead of a t i don't think really matters yeah we see the scouts raised up on their torture frames you can tell from this that they are torturing just all of the scouts that they've collected. Doesn't matter who they are, they're up on the torture frames. The horde is being surprisingly equal opportunity with who they are stringing up and torturing. The issue of a woman being raised up and tortured, I thought that interesting because the only other woman scout that we have seen was raped and murdered right away. Mm -hmm. Now, this woman was kept for more than a full day. Are they going on two days capture now? I think so. So two days of capture and apparently has not been raped. She is fully clothed. Yeah. And these people, I can't imagine them raping a victim and then redressing her. Right. So she seems to be fully clothed. So we can assume that she has not been raped. And so I think I want to give a little bit of credit to the Marauders that in general, they don't seem to be overwhelming rapists, like raping every woman they see. It was hopefully I'd like to think that the grinning Mohawker incident was more isolated. That's a possibility. It is a possibility. I definitely didn't put that much thought into it. I just kind of stuck with the whole, oh, yeah, they're they're killing all of the hostages. They're not sparing any of them. Right. And I I complain a lot, if not verbally on microphone, then at least in my head, about how George Miller treats women with the name thing and the rape thing and stuff like that. But I also have to give him credit that when he's not portraying the rape of women, then in other roles, gender makes no difference. It's completely equal. The women are being strung up in the same way that the men are being strung up. They are being tortured in the same way. There is no consideration made for the women because, you know, women are delicate creatures that must be protected or women are whores that must be raped. Neither of those are being applied here. Yep. So complete gender equality in torturing captives. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Doesn't matter who you are, you too can be tortured in just the same way as your other compatriots. <laughs> yes. Equal opportunity murderer. And we'll talk about it in a few minutes, but that theme of gender equality continues throughout this minute. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> in better ways. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's weird. It is what it is. <laughs> So we fade from that scene back to the Lord Humongous. He's continuing to talk with his arms. <laughs> we fade from him over to Bearclaw Mohawk, who is holding up his hand. I want to cut back just a little bit. Okay. I was thinking about when you said that the Lord Humongous is talking with his hands again. I thought of a scene in West Wing, of course. Mm-hmm. Where Glenn Close is a guest character on an episode. 
and Josh Lyman has a meeting with another senator who needs to be convinced of something, and to do so, they get him drunk. Well, at the same time, Josh Lyman gets drunk. So then he has to go get somebody's attention who's meeting with the Glenn Close character, and she notices him, and she's like, he is gesticulating wildly. (laughs) And that is exactly what I thought of with the Lord Humongous, that he is gesticulating wildly. (laughs) And anytime I can quote Glenn Close. Yep, especially from West Wing. Okay, now we can move on to Bear Claw Mohawk. So he is not necessarily gesticulating wildly, but he's holding up his hand, and at the end of his hand is his Bear Claw tool attachment gauntlet thing i was thinking of it as a glove but i'm not really sure it's actual construction so i don't know yeah but he's holding his hands with his fingers in a claw configuration they're all bent and claw like in their appearance i don't know a better way to describe it but above his fingers you can see that his claw is bloodied which means that he's probably been using it on the victims and his inclusion here is it's just more window dressing i think (laughs) I think it is. Although he is standing right in front of a victim who's been strung up. Right. So the assumption that we can make is that that blood on his claw hand is from the victim standing behind him. And he's wearing a mask. So you can't see his face, but you can see his, his beautiful silver gray mohawk. I had a bit of a Mandela effect with this scene Mm -hmm. all the times that I've watched it, and I always assumed that he was holding something in his hand, but every time I go back and watch it, his hand is empty. He's just holding up his claw. Yeah. And I always assumed that there was a bit of a, I guess, Temple of Doom moment where he was holding like a heart or something in his hand because the imagery there just reminded me of Mola Ram from Temple of Doom, pulling hearts out and whatnot. Oh yeah, I see that. So his hand is empty. I watched it over and over and over again to confirm or deny that. But I couldn't help but just thinking in my head that he was doing that. His posture would also fit with if he had some kind of trophy in his hand. Exactly. After seeing Bear Claw Mohawk here, we get one more fade back to Lord Humongous before we do a hard cut to the compound dwellers. And we've got a couple of no-name dwellers on the turrets by the gate. So we've got one guy on the flamethrower, and he appears to look over at his friend on the crossbow with one of those, oh dear, what are we going to do type of looks, but it's so quick. And then the guy on the crossbow is just hunched over scanning the horizon with his mounted scorpion weapon. When the lookout called that something was going on on the hill and everybody stopped and paid attention to this nightmare scene, there must have been a transition of, okay, this is still happening out in front of us. We are still watching our comrades being tortured, but we can't sit here and watch it. We have to get to work. Yeah, the torture begins around sunset. And when we cut back to the compound, it is just night. Some span of time. I'd say at least an hour or two has passed. And the people up on the turrets defending the compound, they're probably still very concerned about what's going on. But as we cut to a wide shot of the compound, everyone is way too busy to be worried about what's happening outside of their compound here. Yeah, I think the people on the defenses are the only ones paying attention anymore because it's their job to pay attention. Exactly. So in this wide shot, you can see people working on the rig. You can see people collecting things into other vehicles. They're loading up the buggy and another 
large station wagon. I think it's a red and white Ford custom line. And then you've also got people working on the silver lone wolf vehicle that the leather clad Raiders rode in on. You've got people working at the top of the tanker. And we get to cut around and focus on what everyone's doing. And as we cut around, we get a lot of Zeta shouting. Zeta has really taken up the job of making sure that everybody stays on topic and stays on task. So in this first wide shot, we hear Zeta say, who's supposed to be helping out with the drums? Come on. I found that to be a very interesting line. Mm -hmm. At this time, to our best knowledge, all of the fuel is in the tanker. Right. So why would they need barrels? But devil's advocate, they have different kinds of fuel. Right. Not everything is gasoline. They have diesel. They have high octane. We know those two for sure. They probably have other byproducts. So those things would need to go in barrels. So at first, I was very suspicious of him mentioning barrels. But now that I've thought it through a little bit more, it makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Even if the tanker was full of gasoline, they would still need barrels. And as we cut from the wide shot over to a couple of dwellers working on top of the tanker, we hear Zeta continue saying, hey, don't forget, don't waste a bit before we leave. So they could also be just filling up the vehicles. They've got several of them on hand, including the bus gate that they got to make sure are full up and ready to go. However, we know, because we've seen this movie before, and pretty much everybody listening has seen this movie before, that the tanker is not going to be holding all that gasoline at the end of this movie. And so I have a feeling that everybody in the compound, one of the things that they are busy doing is making sure that they roll out the containment barrels fill up the gasoline from the tanker and put it in the other vehicles in preparation to move out that morning. And the reason that we as viewers aren't shown them specifically doing that, it's only hinted at in the dialogue, is because Max, the gyro captain, and the feral child are not paying attention. We're going to see tomorrow that the gyro captain is very interested in leaving early. Max is fully interested in not sticking around. The feral child is following Max around. So none of the people that are our POV characters or storytellers after the fact are paying attention to these running around preparations that the compound dwellers are doing. Mm -hmm. But we also have not seen enough barrels around to contain the fuel that we think or know that they have. My idea was that they had dug a hole, put the material in the tanker, and put the barrels in the hole. But it's not like we've had like a thorough tour of the compound. Right. They could have a... A storehouse for all intents and purposes. A storehouse? I was thinking more of like a dry cellar. Maybe yeah. underneath one of those large tents or the giant tent covering garage metal yeah. triangle pyramid thing. They actually, in the screenplay, it's actually called the Pyramid Workshop. There you go. Yep. Because it looks like a giant pyramid pyramid with a bunch of stuff sticking out of it. Yep. But there could be a dugout cellar underneath there where they had all of these barrels that they're supposed to have because the gyro captain, when they first stumbled on the compound, and granted, the gyro captain had not been inside the compound when he was saying this, but he said... They've got thousands of gallons, and if you've only got 55-gallon drums, you're going to need a lot of drums. 18 or 20 barrels per yeah. thousand, I want to say, roughly. I'm not great at math. <laughs> yeah, that's, man, I mean, how do you even fit that many barrels in a bus? Yeah, take out some seats. But then you make the bus so freaking heavy. Wow, that is for another time. We have plenty of time. 
to critique their escape with the fuel. At this moment, Zeta is still shouting for people to get to work. He is pretty much posted up in the middle of the compound standing next to that lone wolf vehicle. There is another dweller that's just working on that engine to make sure it's good to go. You've got the mechanic on his rig and he's working on the Mack truck. And the little bit of comedy in this scene is definitely the curmudgeon. In the wide shot, you can see him running around. He's chasing a pig and a chicken. The pig runs off behind the lone wolf. The chicken runs underneath the custom line. And when we see him next around second 43, he's got the chicken by the legs and he's trying to herd two or three pigs to go in the same direction and he's just yelling i want to catch the pigs (laughs) seeing the woman fixing the lone wolf made me think of a couple of things first of all this is the compound parallel to gender equality that a woman is fixing the car you know there's a stereotype that cars are too complicated for women to understand and that you know obviously isn't true There was also a woman up on top of the tanker helping to do the welding up there. She was up there with either Timbo or Derek, still not sure who it is. Right. So those two in particular stood out to me. But there were, you know, women all over the place doing everything the men were doing. There was no Mm. difference between them. I think in a post-apocalyptic setting where the workforce is limited and resources are tight, you can't afford to be sexist. Right. Because everybody needs to pull their own weight. Interesting. So sexism is inefficient, a product of surplus, surplus time, surplus resources. Yeah. If you've got enough time and resources that one person out of a two person pairing can sit around being restricted from responsibilities, then yeah, that represents to me a representation of surplus. You are in a comfortable enough position where you can afford to say, hey, you person, demographic person, you're not allowed to do X, Y, and Z, only I am. Around the compound, we see a couple of women, specifically there's a woman on top of the tanker helping to weld, and there is the woman working on the lone wolf to fix it, where we see more examples of gender equality mirroring the gender equality in a negative light. From the Marauders. I really, really like this. There's so much history to sexism that we are certainly not going to get into. But in this post-apocalyptic setting, people don't have the luxury to be sexist to one another. And I would assume the same thing for racism. We don't have the luxury to say, oh, your skin is a different color, therefore you can't fix my car. You're a woman, therefore you can't fix my car. If you have the skill to fix a car, that's where you're going to get put. If you have the capability of learning how to fix a car, that's what's going to happen because they need people who can fix cars. Right. They need people who can weld. They need people who can fight. They need people who can cook and sew. And nobody cares who you are. If you have those skills, that's what you're going to do. And even if you don't have those skills, at least you can assist the person that does have those skills. And maybe by osmosis, you'll pick up the skill yourself. Bouncing off of that, these people that we're seeing, we haven't seen them work before. Specifically, I'm thinking of the woman up on top of the tanker. She has a memorable face. It's very round and sweet and kind of cherubic. Yeah. So I remember that she was with Big Rebecca. She was one of the people who dropped her weapons with Big Rebecca. She was in both crowds that surrounded the gyro captain 
and Max. Mm -hmm. So she was one of those people that we have talked about before who we don't know why they're there. We don't know how they got there. We don't know. We talked about them like, what is their usefulness? Yeah. They're not fighters. We know that. They don't look like fighters. They're not behaving like fighters. They are ready and willing to give up. So why are they even there? I feel like now we're finding out that there are welders and mechanics who we just haven't had an opportunity before to see them work. And that actually makes me wonder if they came with Papagallo because they knew how to be mechanics and welders and fabricators in general. Yeah. I think if, if he said, I need these kind of people, you have those skills. Okay. Come with me. Yeah. I think that goes back to the idea that they were employees of the company that he worked at, or maybe the folks that ran the pump initially, the folks that were left behind when the collapse happened. And then Papagallo, their boss showed up and started taking charge again. Right. Like, it would make sense that that's where they would come from. We know from the screenplay that Papagallo takes credit for building the plant there. But he didn't build it all by himself. Yeah, he needed help. He needed help. And we know that there are fabricators amongst this group. So I'm guessing that they are there on purpose. So we are going to continue to stick with the compound. We're going to see people continuing to work. But we're also going to see other people in the compound who have a different idea of how to prepare for the next day's event. So we'll pick up with them tomorrow and we hope you will be there to join us. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 50 of the Road Warrior. See you tomorrow.